Hello, and welcome to the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Mike Roach. Mike has four decades of law enforcement experience, beginning his career with the Little Rock Police Department, and then spent 26 years with the U.S. Secret Service. Fifteen years of his career were focused on conducting behavioral threat assessments of those threatening to engage in targeted violence. Mike was also assigned as the intelligence liaison to the FBI and CIA headquarters and was assigned to the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Mike is the author of four novels, a nonfiction work on rapport building, and Mass Killers, How You Can Identify Workplace, School, or Public Killers Before They Strike. Mike? Welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast, uh, Fred. It's it's my honor. I'm humbled by the uh, the, the invitation. Well, you have a very impressive uh, background, Mike. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you got here. Yeah, so um, I had started in uh, law enforcement um, many years ago. I guess you could actually call me a uh, vintage now. I could be sold in an antique store, but uh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> So uh, way back 1979, I started with the Little Rock, Arkansas Police Department, which is uh, now classified as the most violent small city in America. And um, I did 10 years there and then uh, spent one year with ATF. I went uh, federal and then uh, landed up with the Secret Service, which was actually my first choice and uh, was assigned to uh, New Orleans and then moved around several times since then. And ended up a total of 26 years with uh, the Secret Service. What was the best assignment that you had with the U.S. Secret Service? Oh, gosh. Um, so, I, you know, I had, you know, various parts where I would say, where, like in Miami, for example, I had some, um, some good times. I was on the counterfeit squad and, you know, did some undercover work. And uh, we had some, you know, multi-million dollar uh, seizures of, of counterfeit currency. And, so, you know, that that was fun. But, you know, I think where I really drew my passion was when I was assigned to the Protective Intelligence uh, Division in Washington and um, began, uh, be- became interested then in the, the field of threat assessments and, um, you know, uh, working with the folks up there with uh, the National Threat Assessment Center was created. Um, and then prior to that, we had the, uh, the exceptional case study program that uh, studied uh, attackers and assassins. So all of that material, that research that was being conducted by, you know, uh, others, um, including, you know, Robert Fain and uh, Brian Boscule and, of course, your own uh, Marissa, that, um, you know, I was able to use that information to go out and actually conduct you know, threat assessments of individuals that were showing an unusual direction of interest towards our protectees. So I would say that that was the, the, the best part then going forward and, and having a passion for that area. 
Mike, what years were you in the Protective Intelligence Division for the Secret Service? So that would have been 1997 to 2001. That's very interesting because uh, I was the deputy chief of the State Department's Protective Intelligence Division from about 1986 to 1998. And now I'm visualizing your name and some correspondence back and forth on uh, various threat actors. And, you know, that could very well have been, um, you know, we'd send them out to, you know, um, you know, and, and this is where, you know, to me, we always had great cooperation, you know, whether it was up in DC. And then when I went out to Tampa, I had, you know, great uh, networking relationship with all the, the local uh, agencies. And, um, you know, if there was a threat that came up, everybody was making sure that everybody was informed of, of that threat, which is, is crucial. And, um, you know, it's part of our due diligence to, to make sure that our partners are also informed. Well, and I think most people fail to recognize how much uh, liaison work actually goes behind the scenes on these kinds of cases with the notification process through not only our federal partners, but also to the locals and the state police. Absolutely. And especially like when I was out in the field in Tampa, you know, I called them and I referred to them, uh, you know, the attorney general had come down and, um, you know, I told him, I said, listen, this is my safety net. These are the people that will call me, whether it's the 4th of July or, you know, the middle of the night to, to notify me that, hey, there's somebody that is on their radar that they're concerned about. And we would go out together and jointly investigate these because in Florida, they have the ability to, um, you know, Baker Act somebody, which is the, uh, the, uh, commitment process for mental health where I wouldn't be able to do that. And, um, you know, and they could also run the, the, the local checks and, you know, transport prisoners. Uh, you know, it was just a, a great alliance that we had. Mike, tell me a little bit about your book, Mass Killers. Yeah, so um, I, uh, when I f retired the first time, um, I was uh, recruited to teach a class for St. Leo University, which is uh, north of, of Tampa, by a, uh, uh, one of the professors there, uh, Barry Glover was his name. And uh, so I started teaching this, this class for them. And with that then began writing um, the book to go along with the class. Uh, Barry, unfortunately, uh, passed away unexpectedly and that the interest kind of uh, dissipated from the university. So I ended up continuing to write the book, but then uh, went to work for another group that recruited me to come out and teach for them as well, which was called the Alpha Group that specialized on teaching um, analysts. And uh, so I finished up the book and uh, went from there. It was then updated again this uh, a year ago, January. And um, what it focuses on is trying to help people to look for uh, concerning behaviors to, to identify these attackers before uh, they launch their attack and to try to uh, mitigate and manage their uh, behavior going forward and then how to conduct actually uh, a threat assessment and the, the, the actual investigation that goes into it. 
And in looking at your book, uh, you cover some of the most famous cases like the Charles Whitman and the University of Texas uh, sniper shooter. We actually have had another author on that did a book on that. And um, we've we've done a tour of the actual sniper site uh, from a tactical perspective. That's very interesting because I, I read the book and, um, you know, we, we often sit there and, and think that this is kind of a, a new phenomenon, which... Um, although the, the frequency has obviously increased, uh, we've had some of these incidents that have happened, you know, over, uh, you know, going back to 1927, we had the Bath, Michigan um, schoolhouse um, murder in which um, Andrew Kehoe, um, who was going through a lot of uh, distress in his life. Uh, his wife was sick with tuberculosis and uh, that they were foreclosing on his farm. He had lost a recent election. He was overdue on taxes. And uh, so he kills his wife, sets his farm on fire and then detonates explosives in the, um, in the school and killed, uh, you know, a huge amount of, of children and, uh, and adults as well. So, uh, and then, like you said, then Charles Whitman, who had a genius level IQ, um, you know, on the surface appeared to be the all-American boy. But then as you drill down, you start to see, well, you know, he had a, a dysfunctional life growing up, uh, you know, was uh, you know, abused by his father, um, landed up failing out of the uh, University of Texas uh, on his first go around, disciplined by the Marine Corps, had difficulty holding a job. He was involved with some uh, domestic issues with his uh, wife and then his mother, and, and ultimately lands up killing them first, his wife and his mother, before he launches the attack from uh, the, the top of the tower. And, and he had also intimated to his psychiatrist that he had these intrusive thoughts. And, uh, uh, you know, again, we're looking at what, 1966, so the psychiatrist didn't actually you know, wasn't as alarmed as somebody might be today. Mike, I was struck in your book, Matt's Killers, uh, Chapter 4, where you have your philosophy called the barking dog theory. I had not heard that before. Walk us through that. Yeah, so um, I, I always said that, um, you know, first of all, you have to take all threats seriously. But, um, you know, the the, the principle behind that is like when we would execute search warrants, uh, you'd go up to the to the fence and there would be a barking dog out front announcing, hey, this is my territory. I'm going to bite you if you come over this fence. So um, you, that was a, a threat that was known to you. But once you breach, if you had come up to the fence and there was no dog and you uh, kick in the front door, you breach it, you get in, and then you hear that low guttural Growl and the toenails scratching on the linoleum floor, you know you're you're getting ready to have a bad day. And you know it's those threats that we don't always see that can be the most dangerous to us. And those are the ones that we need to to look into. You know, Mike, uh, you and I have been in this business now a long time. Uh, I started in 1981, and and you in 1979. And I'm I'm really shocked at the tempo of our latest spate of mass killers over the past three to four years. And I'm, I'm sure 
you are as well. Any any ideas as to what's driving that? Sadly, I almost think it's like, you know, people that in the past perhaps had considered, you know, um, taking their own lives might go out into, you know, the, the woods and, and kill themselves or uh, whatever means that they use. Where today now it's it's almost become a cultural phenomenon that, hey, you know, I'm not only going to kill myself, I'm also going to seek revenge and extract revenge on all those people that I perceive either um, realistically or perceived grievances. And I'm going to take as many people with me as I possibly can so that all those people are going to realize what a mistake they made. And, um, you know, I know that they will remember my name forever. I'll have an explanation mark next to my name. Uh, Wikipedia will become my tombstone, so to speak. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Antec's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. This is why we created the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. Mike, and I know the Nashville Police Department appears to be getting a fair amount of flack over not releasing the manifesto of uh, our latest shooter, which will go unnamed, obviously, for for this podcast. What do you feel about that? Do you think it's best to disclose those manifestos and let everybody see exactly what the shooter thought? Or is it best to keep that under wraps so it doesn't inspire others? You know, I, I guess you could probably make the argument both ways. I mean, personally feeling... I'd like to read the manifesto so I can see what was going through that individual's mind and that as threat uh, assessment professionals or practitioners, we can, you know, glean some knowledge from that, what their mindset was, and perhaps learn from that. Um, You know, I think that it's going to come down that perhaps um, they felt, you know, disenfranchised by, you know, the church, their parents, the community, whatever it may be. Uh, but it'd be interesting to, to actually read it. Like I said, personally, I'd like to see it released so that I can learn from it and and you as well and everybody else. And it's hard to not look at how the heroic efforts of the Nashville Police Department responded to that event and compare and contrast that to the horrific tragedy in Uvalde. Any thoughts on that? Uh, you know, just... They took care of business, okay? That they arrived on scene, they went in there, and, um, you know, I watched, I, I got chills, you know, just watching it and seeing, you know, my heart rate increased is because, you know, we've been in similar situations like that. 
and to, to see how they were handling business, teamwork, the, the communication that took place. Um, and it was a, let's get to the, the shooter. And, and again, and here is the, the heroics. They can hear the gunshots and they're not slowed down. They're, they are going towards that threat to, to take that threat out. Where, you know, sadly in Uvalde, you know, we've all seen that the sad video of the shots being fired. And here you've got, you know, children that desperately need first aid, you know, um, to, to be rendered to them. And perhaps that could have saved numerous lives had they uh, entered in. But, um, you know, sadly, we saw that, um, you know, the, the action wasn't taken. And, um, you know, is just uh, polar opposites, and obviously Nashville is now being praised as the, the the model going forward. Mike, as you look at the protective intelligence space, uh, and you kind of look out over the next five to ten years, where do you see this field going? Or, or maybe a better question along those lines is, what's on the horizon in this space? So I, I'm kind of excited the the direction it's going. I, you know, like when you and I first started, we were like, you know, the the you know, you know, yelling into the the cave and just hearing the the, the echoes. <laughs> you know, I mean, there was nobody else out there, and um, you know, now, you know, especially I can you know go on LinkedIn and you know there are so many people now interested in this field. ATAP is is educating people. That there are companies such as Ontech that are, you know, out there uh, providing services to to the corporate world, and you know, I see eventually that you will have college degrees, you know, or at least you know a focus of it, perhaps in the psychology department of conducting threat assessments, and um, you know, I think it's just going to continue to expand, and uh, you know, it. it to me, it's it's thrilling to see how many people are now involved in it and and seeking that additional knowledge. I remember at our first Antic Summit that we had uh, about three years ago, and I looked in the, across the room and I saw about fifty protective intelligence specialists uh, that were laser fixated on this, and predominantly in the corporate America space, which is really kind of phenomena that. Is just amazing to me. And then we recently had our recent summit, and we had hundreds of people there that attended. And this field has just taken off, and it's certainly one that I think is very has a very bright future, especially for those analysts that uh, maybe aren't interested in the government space, or maybe want to do a couple years in the government space and then move into the private sector. No, I agree, and uh, I, I'm excited about it, and. You know, I'm glad to have a lot of company now, um, you know, joining into that space. And like you said, especially for analysts, if you don't have an analyst working with you, um, it's becoming uh, much more challenging to, to do a correct threat assessment. And, you know, so many departments, you look at, you know, 75% of police departments across the country are 25 officers or less. So a lot of them don't have the capacity. Uh, to conduct threat assessments, but, you know, they can reach out to their county or state agencies or, you know, the fusion centers where uh, 
um, you have an analyst that can, you know, go in and do a deep dive into, you know, their social media and see whether there's leakage occurring. And, you know, um, people that have been trained to conduct threat assessments can actually go out and conduct interviews. Mike, looking back over your career, starting with the Little Rock Police Department through ATF to the Secret Service, uh, what advice would you give to that uh, student now that's maybe a psychology major or criminal justice major at a local university as to how to get into this field? So I I would say probably, you know, if you're in school, uh, try to focus on um, you know, psychology and sociology type classes to, to give you that background and understanding of, you know, how the, the, the mind works and uh, what impairments uh, people may be, uh, you know, conflicted with. And, um, you know, um, start out, you know, you and I were both, you know, local street cops to begin with. And um, I think that helps to to, to understand people because you're, you're dealing with them, you're conducting interviews, even if it's on traffic stops or, uh, you know, uh, investigating car accidents. And uh, that gives you the ability to, to deal with people and learn how uh, different mindsets operate. And then, uh, you know, look to agencies. And, and again, a lot of the local agencies have now started threat management units or at least, you know, training you know, an investigator and an analyst in this field. For sure. Mike, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say? Uh, no, I, I appreciate the opportunity that you've, you know, you've given to me. And again, I'm, you know, when I received the, the invitation, I said, well, this is kind of like the, the teacher interviewing the student because, you know, I, I'm very humbled to, to be interviewed by you and, you know, and again, Marissa Randazzo was one of my mentors at the Secret Service. So, you know, OnTech has always been out in the, the, the forefront of threat management. And um, I appreciate everything that you've done in the field as well. Well, you're very kind to say that, Mike. And uh, I thank you for your years of service to our great nation. Thank you, Fred. This episode was brought to you by the Ontech Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontech.co slash center. Again, that's ontech.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.